Welcome to the Come Follow Me Made Easier podcast with Cedar Fort. I am your host, Linda Cherry, and today I am also co-hosting with Thomas Holton all the way from Ireland. Welcome, Tom. It's so good to be with you today. Absolutely. Great to be with you, Linda. I'm excited about it today. I think Tom and I are both excited. I wanted to share Thomas's book, Alive in Christ. It's a beautiful book, and I couldn't help but feel that as Thomas and I were preparing to share this podcast on Isaiah 50 to 57, that for both of us, based on our writing and our specific focus on the redemption of Jesus Christ, that these specific chapters of Isaiah 50 to 57 have particular meaning to both of us. I know that for me, these chapters in Isaiah deeply impacted my testimony and desire to follow Christ. And I still, even as I read and review them today, I feel a sense of awe and wonder at the fact that the Lord loves us so deeply that in my opinion, these chapters are what I have always referred to as love letters or love songs from the Savior to his people. What about you, Tom? What's Before we begin, what's your sort of overall impression of Isaiah 50 through 57? I'm in complete alignment with you on that. I, for years, I've loved Isaiah, and particularly chapters 52 and 53, love 53. And actually, I find myself just coming back to it again and again, and it seems to yield new insights. And it, it just, what you've said there is so true, a love letter, and the way it's written, the power with which it's written, the sense of expression. Isaiah is such a master with words, I think, and with symbolism. And so I really love it. When I was a child, I thought Isaiah was very difficult to understand. But as I've grown through the years, I've really come to love and appreciate the way he writes and what he writes about. Absolutely agree with you. I love these chapters. I'm excited to look at them. Me too. Thank you. We're so fortunate. What's really quite compelling to me is the fact that Isaiah wrote these prophecies more than a hundred years before Jerusalem fell to Babylon. And in fact, the prophecies are so specific and have been fulfilled in such detail that it has caused scholars throughout the millennia to assert that, in fact, Isaiah could not have written them because they're just too accurate. But then we have the Savior quoting from some of these specific chapters when he visits the Nephites and, of course, gives the credit to Isaiah. We often think about them as Isaiah's prophecies, and certainly they are that, but much of them, much of what is written is in a first-person account as if it's the Lord speaking to us directly. And so when we look at these specific prophecies and how they were fulfilled for the children of Israel after they had been conquered by Babylon, there's the promise that they would be remembered, that God would redeem them, that he would remember his covenant with them, and that he would restore them. We need to make sure to apply them to our own lives as well. And that as surely as he has performed each of these promises and fulfilled them to the very letter, we can count on him still keeping all of the future promises to us and their fulfillment. What are your thoughts about that, Tom? That is such an important insight. There's a number of things that really strike me. This idea of covenant that really, uh, of course, the Old Testament you could say that's the old covenant. The New Testament is the new covenant. And 
the Book of Mormon is another covenant, and uh, of course, the Doctrine and Covenants as well. So there's always this theme that the Lord wants a covenant people. And I'm so struck by the fact that he wants to be in covenant relationship with us. That's always a sense of a link that is eternal. And I love the idea that the Lord is so patient. We talk in the gospel often about patience and long-suffering. Obviously, God and our Savior, they are really long-suffering and patient because these covenants, as you've said, Israel struggled to live up to them. And we still struggle today, really, to live up to the full grandeur of these covenants. But this idea that our Father in Heaven and the Savior are so patient They always come back to that promise, to that covenant. That's what they're going to do. They're not going to forget about it. They're not going to be asleep. They're not going to just ignore it. They remember. And I'm so impressed by that. That's the theme, this theme of covenants. Yes. And in fact, to your point, Tom, even though we start with chapter 50, technically, I have to pick up again with chapter 49, which I know is so much a favorite with so many. And this is where there is a kind of conversation that takes place between covenant Israel and Jehovah, Jesus Christ, in the discussion of Israel having been scattered or in their eyes, perhaps even banished. The Lord is telling them they're going to have to go through the furnace of affliction in order to come back into a full covenant status because they have betrayed their covenants and they have been idolatrous, which he also refers to as being adulterous. And throughout these chapters, there's a heavy emphasis on the Lord painting himself as a faithful husband to Israel as the bride. And in chapter 49, it's as if the bride says to Jehovah, I've been wandering to and fro again, looking forward to the sense that they were going to be scattered and an awe and almost a disbelief that they could possibly be gathered again and that he would keep his covenants with them. And they said, how can this be? We have been scattered to and fro and we've been wandering the earth and surely God will have forgotten us. And this is then in the great discourse when he says, even a nursing mother might forget her child. But yet I cannot forget. I will not forget. Thy walls are continually before me and I have graven thee in the palms of my hands. And again, this is many years before the Savior was born and before he performed the atonement. And this sense that we are so precious to him as his covenant people, that he bears those marks and those reminders of his infinite love for us and the promise that he will redeem us. And we have this powerful beginning with chapter 49 before coming into Isaiah chapter 50. Now we know that anciently the Isaiah scroll is not broken into this sort of chapters as we have them, but they would have been continuous. And what I really love is that we go right into Isaiah chapter 50 after this question about Can the Lord remember his people, even though they have strayed away from him? And in Isaiah 50, chapter chapter 50, verses 1 and 2, he, in essence, tells them he's going to remember because there is no bill of divorce. He says, where is the bill of divorce? And he says, you've sold yourselves. And this is important for us when we do consider our own covenant relationship with the Lord, is that oftentimes when we realize that we've done wrong, We are the ones to cast ourselves off. We're the ones to say, 
I'm not worthy. He can't remember me. And surely all is lost. And he uses this analogy of a marriage to us that is unbreakable, that despite what we despite the fact that we might have strayed, that he is still keeping that marriage covenant. And in fact, through his atonement, he will, in essence, seal that marriage covenant with us if we will accept his atonement in our behalf and if we will repent. Your thoughts? I love that, Linda, because that's such a perfect description of the Lord, this idea of a perfect husband. And of course, many wives might wonder, is there such a thing as a perfect husband? And many husbands would wonder the same thing. But the Lord is perfect. And this symbolism that you've referred to, graven thee in the palms of my hands. And it's a real sense of permanence and a real sense of that hurt. But the hurt was facilitated by the fact that Christ loved us so deeply. He was willing to die for us. That's a sober thought. And I think Isaiah pointing us to these signs and symbols is such a reminder. It's a potent reminder that uh, the Lord's infinite covenant love, and that's the way I see it. It's a covenant belonging, as Elder Gong has referred to. And you're absolutely right. It's manifest through the Father and the Son in this atonement that Christ was willing and the Father, they were willing to suffer to reveal to us that we're not cast off forever. So I love that symbolism. I love the idea. And I think you're right that each of us has probably uh, wondered about our own ability to keep our covenants, to remember our promises. We've struggled, we've faltered, we've fallen short, and sometimes even been rebellious. But when we've come to our senses and come to ourselves, we've realized that our father and his son are permanent in their ability to love us. And so I really love that imagery and that symbolism. And it's more than just imagery. It's literal in so many ways that we are bonded, we are welded to our father and his son. So powerful. Now, Isaiah prophesies about the Messiah, both for his first and second coming or his mortal ministry and also the second coming which has caused some confusion for readers throughout time as they look for one form of a Messiah or another. Let's be honest that most of the people of Jesus's day were not looking for the Messiah as the suffering servant that is described in Isaiah 53. And we'll be discussing that in a few minutes. And so It's really interesting as we read Isaiah, as we see the prophecies are married with one another, sometimes showing him as this great redeemer and powerful creator and a Lord of armies. And at other times as someone who is going to suffer for the sake of his people. And so in Isaiah 50 verses five through seven, we have this prophecy of the Messiah. The Lord God hath opened mine ear, and I was not rebellious. I gave my back to the smiters, and my cheeks to them that plucked off the hair. I hid not my face from shame and spitting, for the Lord God will help me. Therefore shall I not be confounded. Therefore have I set my face like a flint, and I know that I shall not be ashamed. That final line there about him setting his face like a flint. That's like a a stone that setting his face 
with such a determination that he would perform the atonement reminds me so much of many of the things that Jesus said that last week of his life and just before he went into Jerusalem when he knew that he was going to be killed. And we can see in his manner then this sense of setting his face like a flint to endure the shame that's prophesied here. And I love, Tom, that you brought up that it's important for us to understand this is the Father's plan too. A lot of times lately, I've noticed that people are separating the Godhead. And I think it's very important for us to understand this one in purpose and that this is the Father's plan and what a sacrifice it was for the Father as well. Absolutely, Linda. And I'm really struck by that, that obviously we tend to think about Christ's suffering and his suffering is beyond compare. It's tremendous. And he did it voluntarily. He did it out of love. And of course, the idea that the father was suffering as well in watching his son go through this, but he was motivated by that pure love. And I think you've hit on a key point there, this idea of the suffering servant, that Christ didn't come to put on the cloak of convenience or to have a life of luxury or comfort or ease. He came to face trouble, to face it head on, to face all the afflictions that were associated with hunger and thirst and pain and betrayal, but to do so with love and a love not that's bounded to the moment only, but a love that transcends, that has the ability to, to suffer but not be swallowed up and remain in hatred and bitterness and contempt but a love that that lasts eternally and a love that's revealed in his kindness. I've always been struck by the fact that Christ didn't stop the atonement by saying this is unjust, this is unfair, this is illegal, this is unwarranted, what did I do wrong? He didn't speak a word of that. He submitted to it, and some might see that as weak, but I don't. I think those verses indicate to us that this was an expression of love, love and a willingness to suffer, but to show that he was willing to suffer to bless us and to save us. And how we were able to completely rely upon that promise of his having performed the atonement. In chapter 51, he tells us as a people that we should look to our father, Abraham, and our mother, Sarah, to look to the quarry from which we are dug. And this sense that they believed they had such faith and confidence in Hebrews 11 It tells us that even though they died without having actually received all the covenant promises, they died in faith, having embraced those covenant promises as if they had received them. And how powerful it is that Adam and Eve and all of the mothers and fathers who had gone before the actual ministry of the Savior were able to partake of the atonement because we could rely on him absolute, as he says, to set his face as a flint to perform that work. And so I have always loved these verses in Isaiah 51 verses one through three, where the Lord said, you have to count on my word. Look to your, look to unto Abraham, your father, and unto Sarah that bear you for I called him alone and blessed him and increased him. And so in, in some ways, there's so many different interpretations to these verses. As I mentioned earlier, just the sense of looking to Abraham and Sarah for their faith, but also in just the belief that those promises that were made to Abraham and Sarah are still in effect and have yet to be fulfilled. And that we need to look to that and believe that we are part of that heritage, 
that we are part of that covenant family. And in verse three, the Lord says, for the Lord shall comfort Zion. He will comfort all her waste places and he will make her wilderness like Eden and her desert like the garden of the Lord. Joy and gladness shall be found therein, thanksgiving and the voice of melody. Now, just thinking of this description, Tom, in our day, when the earth seems to be in so much commotion and there seems to be war and illness, so much fear, people don't trust one another. When I read about this promise that as surely as the Lord made promises to Abraham and Sarah, he is going to make the earth an Eden, that it is going to be a garden, that it will be filled with joy and gladness. I feel like it's so important for me to look to Abraham and Sarah and say, how did they act according to these promises? And how can I live my life right now as if I am claiming those promises and as if I believe with all my heart in that goodness and restoration and redemption that is coming? What are your thoughts? Yeah, so that's fabulous. I'm really struck by that. Three things that strike me that Abraham was known as the father of the faithful. And I love that description because, again, we live in a day and age when many fathers, not all, obviously, but many are regarded as absentees or not involved in the lives of their children. Abraham was the opposite. He was adamantly involved in the lives of his wives and children. And he's the father of the faithful. He's the very epitome in many ways of faithfulness for a mortal man. And so I love that. And I think you're right that that links with the second idea that Christ uses this language of will, shall. These are imperatives. These are not contingencies that the Christ and the Father are going to offer salvation to the world. It's not a question of if. This is an absolute guarantee. For me, I look upon this as a certainty. It's an absolute certainty. And we know that the Son came to perform that work by covenant. And he wasn't gonna he wasn't gonna run away from that covenant, he fulfilled it. So he was faithful, like Abraham was faithful to the covenant. And then the third thing that I'm struck by, which you've touched on, we live in a time of affliction and war and turmoil and the earth is in commotion. But this promise of flourishing, the promise of blossoming as the rose, as the Book of Mormon refers to, and a new Eden. And the de her desert, like the garden of the Lord, it's beautiful language. It really is warm and consoling and faith promoting. A lot of people talk about climate change and things like that and without getting into any sort of political discussions about it. But I find it interesting that the Lord has promised us a new heaven and a new earth. And he's promised us that in the last days that there will be the garden of the Lord and not just in one place, but the whole earth. And all the deserts blossoming and water and bounty and fruit and honey. And so it's that sense of believing. It's the sense of certainty that we know God has the power and the willingness to make this happen. It's not fictional. It's not a dream. And it will be brought about by God's power and by the righteousness of his people. So I love the fact that Isaiah is pointing us to that ultimate redemption. And it's so easy to lose our faith if we start focusing on the trouble of a moment, the trauma, the storm in a teacup. And it's so easy to get distracted. But these verses, these, they provide so much great assurance and confidence. They're like an anchor, really, 
And I don't see that anchor as being something that weighs you down. I see it as something that keeps you grounded. So in the swirl, uh, you, you don't lose your focus on the promises, on the covenants, on the blessings of the Lord. I love that, Tom. And I love your emphasis on the word anchor, because I think it's not a coincidence that both Nephi and Jacob quote from these very chapters at the very beginning of the Book of Mormon to encourage their people that even though they are part of the scattering and even though they are now in a different land, that they are to have faith and confidence in the covenants of the Lord and that they will be fulfilled. And I love the terminology because I think you used it a few minutes ago. They use that the term a number of times, we are not cast off. We are not cast off forever. And they are using Isaiah specifically, not only to prophesy of the atonement of Jesus Christ, but specifically they're using Isaiah to say, this is all part of the plan. A lot of people make the statement that they wish that they had a letter from Heavenly Father, a personal letter about their lives, do this and then do that. And the truth is, honestly, Isaiah is about as close as we are ever going to get to that because Isaiah does tell us in such detail the history of the world. In Isaiah 40, the Lord says, have you not known? Has it not been told to you from the beginning? And he tells us, he, he tells us that he tells us these things from the beginning so that we won't lose our faith, so that we won't be overcome by fear. And so that we will press forward. And then as Abraham and Sarah and as Nephi and Jacob do our part to see that those covenants are fulfilled. I am so grateful for President Nelson, who uses that kind of language with us today that says the Lord is leading us. The Come Follow Me program, for example, was such perfect timing with what was going to happen with the churches being shut down because of COVID. And then the encouragement that we be engaged in gathering Israel on both sides of the veil. There again, President Nelson is saying, this is a prophesied work of the Lord, and we need to do our part as well to see it fulfilled. What are your thoughts? I absolutely love that, and I completely, absolutely agree. I think President Nelson, like all the brethren, are raised up to a purpose. And I've certainly felt like this there's a few things that he's turned the key on. One is the receipt of revelation. I was in the temple recently and I literally had a flood of revelation. So much knowledge, I could barely remember all of it. And I think that directly relates to the fact that he said to us, go to the temple and ask the Lord to teach you. And that's what I did. And I found his promise to be true. I'm also struck by this idea that you've mentioned that the gathering of Israel, because Isaiah rightly focuses so much on the scattering and then the gathering that all is not lost yes the family's broken up it's fractured it's split but it's going to be united in christ in the covenant in the latter days and of course joseph smith has restored the abrahamic covenant in our day we have the same promises the same priesthood the same keys in fact we know that this is the final dispensation in which uh, all things are being gathered in one. And this dispensation won't end in apostasy. It will end in the fulfillment of the promises of the Lord. So you're absolutely right. And one of the proofs I see that Joseph Smith is a prophet and that Isaiah is a prophet is the fact that the latter day gathering of Israel extends not just to the living, but also to the dead. You refer to this on both sides of the veil, which is absolutely prophetic. 
the idea that the great work of missionary work and temple work actually goes on in the spirit world because there's far more people. And we do know in the millennium, the great work will be missionary work and temple work, billions of ordinances to be performed. And so I, I absolutely agree that this Isaiah is pointing us to the greatest age in the history of the world. The proof that Joseph Smith is a prophet, I think one of the proofs is this restoration of this great work, this gathering on both sides of the veil so that the covenants are fulfilled. They're not forgotten. We're not cast off. That's definitive proof that we are in the end times and that the Lord is preparing us to be actively involved. I feel so richly blessed. I've been to the temple many times and I just feel so grateful that I've been able to do that work for other people. Those who have passed on our brothers and sisters who didn't have an opportunity. And that's a fulfillment of scriptural prophecy. And we get to live it in living color. We get to be part of it. So we are. I so agree with you. In fact, it's the Old Testament that specifically brought me to the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. And specifically Isaiah's prophecy about temples in the last days where sons and daughters, and we'll be talking about those verses in just a few minutes, but it's a perfect timing now when you're talking about the great gift we have of doing the work of redemption on both sides of the veil, that this sense that we have the restoration of a temple today. And when Isaiah prophesied that there would be a day that sons and daughters could go and offer an acceptable sacrifice, that is just our time, totally our time. And I feel so grateful for that. Now, when you mention even the joy of that work on both sides and that I think it's important that we know that we have others on the other side of the veil who are also engaged in this work, who are very eager to assist us and do assist us in the work. I love these verses in Isaiah 51, starting with verse 11. Therefore, the redeemed of the Lord shall return and come with singing unto Zion and everlasting joy shall be upon their head. They shall obtain gladness and joy and sorrow and mourning shall flee away. Now we can interpret that very strictly as those who return from their banishment, so to speak, and the scattering to their lands of promise. But I think we can interpret that on numerous levels, which is something I love about Isaiah. I feel like we can interpret that very verse to those who are receiving their temple work, which you were just sharing a few minutes ago. I totally agree because it strikes me one of the things we do in the temple is we, when a temple is dedicated, we sing a Hosanna shout. I know sometimes people may not see that as singing, but we sing the Spirit of God and we do the Hosanna shout. And I often think when I've been at a temple dedication, I think of these words, this idea coming with everlasting joy and coming with singing to the house of prayer, the house of covenant, which of course we know Isaiah prophesied will be raised up in the latter days the mountain of the lord so this idea of sorrow and mourning flees away isn't that what we feel when we're brought to the church when we're brought to the temples of the lord we still have our troubles maybe but for a moment we've cast them aside and we're in the peace and the serenity of the house of god and that's ultimately he wants to save us with that everlasting covenant not just temporarily but everlastingly And I've no doubt, and the scriptures refer to this, that the new song of the Lamb, for example, I've no doubt that the best singing 
and the best music and the best literature lies ahead of us when we are fully encompassed in what Zion offers. And I think we're beginning to see the Lord is unfolding the vision he has of what Zion can mean. And I'm so grateful for Isaiah pointing us. So we have that forward vision that's stuck in the middle. We can have that vision. I love that. Thank you for sharing that. And in fact, I love that sense of the singing coming from a heart that has been freed from fear. And throughout these chapters, throughout these verses, the Lord constantly counsels, don't be afraid. Don't be afraid of man. I'm here. I am he that comforteth you. Look to me. Trust. Have faith. They're very beautiful, reassuring verses. In fact, I can't help but think as I read it so often is again because they are written more than 100 years before the Jews' city fell to Babylon, that for many, and I can't help but think that Daniel might have been one based on what we read about him, is that as they were being carried off, if they would have been thinking about these prophecies, they could have felt wrapped in the arms of God's love. Certainly Nephi and Lehi described their experience that way, that even though they are part of the scattering, both of them exclaim with great thanksgiving and gratitude about how merciful God is and how they are wrapped in the robes of his righteousness and they are encircled in the arms of his love. So I wonder what it would take for us to be able to have a similar view of our own challenges, that when they come and they do come for us, is there a way that we can look to the scriptures and even the verses of Isaiah here and say, all right, the Lord did tell me there were going to be trials. There were going to be hard times. How can I be like Daniel and and feel that sense of God's love encircling me and be a part of the mission and the work that he would have me do? Yeah, that's such a powerful thought, really, isn't it? That we are all going to be in the midst of darkness, in a sense. We're going to have to pass through, like Lehi did, pass through the midst of darkness but the light is on the other side. And I often think about the veil that the Lord waits for us on the other side. And the veil between this life and the next is wafer thin at times. But it's having that perspective. It's having, having the veil drawn back in a sense that we have a spiritual, a long-term view. And I think that's the difference really between God and us as humans in many ways. He has a long-term strategy. He's playing the long game. He's not just caught up in the battle. He knows we are sometimes in the depths of despair. And we've all been through that. I personally believe that you have to go through those depths of despair in order to ascend. And Christ did. He, he, of course, he descended below all men, far below what we do. But he also ascended. Like the depths isn't the end of it. The trouble, the affliction is temporary. But we come out of it. Joy cometh in the morning. And that's not just a nice phrase that we say, but these are literal promises. These are prophecies. Right. These have the weight of authority, the weight of prophetic authority behind them. Absolutely. I agree with you to look to the morning. Right. Now, speaking about coming out of affliction, some of the verses that follow are some of the most powerful in Isaiah. And when we speak about affliction or chastening, I think it's important to see the many different levels that that, that occurred with the fall to Babylon. In other words, that yes, there were some specifically, and especially the leaders in Jerusalem who were quite wicked. And the Lord would refer to what happened as chastening in their behalf. 
But then there were others like Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego who were taken as innocents during that captivity. And they made the best of it. And we would not say that they were being specifically chastened by the Lord, but they were caught in the chastening effects or the affliction. And so it is in our lives. And we've had, in fact, I was just listening to General Conference again this week, our last General Conference. There were a number of talks on abuse and on sorrow and suffering and affliction and a lot of reassurances, specifically Elder Holland and Elder Kiernan about the fact that we don't deserve that we, those who have experienced abuse at the hands of others do not deserve that and have not brought that on themselves. And they are innocents caught in this terrible and serious affliction and pain in life. And that really, as those elders share in conference, but also as here in Isaiah, there's only one that can really make sense of the affliction and the sorrow and the trial that we go through. And that is the Savior himself. And so in Isaiah 51, the Savior talks about this sense that the people have been drinking out of a bitter cup. Now, the bitter cup of the chastening is referred to throughout the scriptures in Isaiah, Ezekiel, Jeremiah, and also in the Psalms about the sense that each of us is brewing our own sort of cup of consequence for our behavior or our unrepented sins. And I always like to have this picture in my mind based on these scriptures that every sacrament meeting, I picture myself standing in a line to go to the sacrament table. And I picture the savior there at the sacrament table. And I'm holding my cup that I've brewed during the week, whether that is a cup of bitterness and recrimination and uh, depression or ugliness, or whether I have repented, but I have this sense that I'm carrying this cup that I've brewed of my natural consequences and my natural thoughts and behavior. And I'm making my way to the sacrament table. And then based on these verses, I'm going to read in just a moment here, I picture that the Savior takes my cup, my nasty cup, and he drinks its contents down. And then he hands me the cup of living water that's pure and clean and that can cleanse and heal and redeem. And it's based on these verses, chapter 51, starting with verse 17. It's the Lord speaking, awake, awake, stand up, O Jerusalem, which has drunk at the hand of the Lord, the cup of his fury. Thou hast drunk in the dregs of the cup of trembling and wrung them out. Therefore, hear now this, thou afflicted and drunken, but not with wine. Thus saith thy Lord, the Lord, and thy God that pleadeth the cause of his people. Behold, I have taken out of thine hand the cup of trembling, even the dregs of the cup of my fury. Thou shalt no more drink it again. But I will put it into the hand of them that afflict thee, which is said to thy soul, bow down that we may go over. And thou hast laid thy body as the ground and as the street to them that went over. So we know that there's a law of justice and of mercy. Justice is that we get consequences for our behavior. And justice is that there is this bitter cup as described here with bitter, bitter dregs in it. But mercy is that the Lord, our savior, our redeemer, takes that cup out of our hand and he says, thou shalt no more drink of it again. But justice demands that somebody drinks it. And so it is in Doctrine and Covenants 19 that the Lord tells us that he drank of it and partook of the bitter cup 
even all the way to the dregs he would that he might not partake and shrink. And Elder Maxwell tells us that what that means is that he meant he didn't want to do it part way. He didn't want to recoil and not finish the work. But as he says, he finished his preparations under the children of men. So what we deserve, Christ removes that from us. And out of his love, partakes of that cup so that we can be clean and have that pure and living water and be healed. Yeah, that is so powerful and so true, Linda, that I've often wondered, what would my life be like if there were no repentance? And obviously, I would be in the gall of bitterness in the sense that I've no, I would have no redeemer to rely on if there were no Christ. And I've absolutely felt that those times when I should be offering, but I'm not because I've given him, I've given him my sins and he has, I've still suffered to a degree, obviously, but I haven't suffered the full weight and I'm not cast off. And I have felt that lightening of the load, that healing and that lifting of the burden that it was transferred to him. And it's a powerful idea that he suffered terribly, but he did it willingly so that we might be, we might be blessed. What a powerful idea. I think that can really encourage us to know that he would value us so highly that he would do that for us. Tom, do you mind reading chapter 52 verses one through three? No problem. Awake, awake, put on thy strength, O Zion. Put on thy beautiful garments, O Jerusalem, the holy city, for henceforth there shall no more come unto thee, into the uncircumcised and the unclean. Shake thyself from the dust, arise and sit down, O Jerusalem. Loose thyself from the bands of thy neck, O captive daughter of Zion. For thus saith the Lord, ye have sold yourselves for naught, and ye shall be redeemed without money. What do those verses mean to you? I love that imagery again, this idea of awake. And this, as we know, is a theme throughout the scriptures. King Benjamin was told to awake by an angel. And I've always loved that account. But this idea that this is a message that needs to be heard. This is something that needs to be understood. If we go through our life and we get a message, this is the message we need to understand. And Zion needs to become strong. Zion needs to be beautiful. In fact, the description of beautiful garments and, of course, the temple connotations there. But that Zion is the holy city. And I've often thought of Zion not simply as a place, but as a people. And the people who go there are good and righteous and they want to do good they want to be honest they want to be true they want to be faithful can we imagine even living in a society where everyone was humble and penitent including ourselves and not just the place but the feeling associated with that the feeling i don't need to lock my door i don't need we don't need police officers we don't need prisons because people are just full of love and full of goodness And it's such a beautiful image, the idea that we are, it's a city of holiness. And I love that, which is promised for the last days we're building. We're preparing to build that sign by changing, having our hearts changed, 
having our minds changed, not being like the world and just being the best version of ourselves. I love this idea, shake thyself from the dust. So obviously Jerusalem and Zion has a mission, has a purpose, has a destiny to rise to. And we are contributors to that, not just spectators. We're not just waiting around for it to happen, for the Lord to make it happen. We have to be cultivating within ourselves the kind of attributes. I say to myself, am I the sort of person that would be comfortable to live in Zion? If Zion was established tomorrow, could I go there? Would I be willing to serve? Would I be willing to bless? Would I be ready uh, to do what needs to be done? And for me, that's my part in fulfilling this promise that the Zion will be redeemed. So I love that imagery and I look forward to, we're already in Zion in a sense, because the stakes of Zion are places of refuge and covert from the storm. But to extend that and to magnify it and to make it beautiful and glorious, that's what I think of. I love that, Tom. Thank you for sharing that. I love that. And I love the sense of awake and arise and a shake thyself from the dust. King Benjamin reminded his people that without the atonement and without the covenant, they are less or we are less in the dust of the earth. And a lot of times we do sit in the dust when we forget who we are. I came from a challenging childhood and and really had a very tough time wondering about family dynamic and how I might repeat some of that family dynamic. There was a fair amount of violence in my ancestry. And I remember that after I got my patriarchal blessing, and my patriarchal blessing spoke a lot about the pre-mortal earth, pre-mortal life, that I remember having this very strong spiritual awareness come to me that I had as much DNA of my heavenly parents as I did of my earthly parents. And again, this is not to put my earthly parents down, but we know how we can become enslaved by a family dynamic. And I felt like the Lord said to me, it's up to you which one you choose to magnify in terms of the DNA. I could have the spiritual and physical DNA of my heavenly parents. And that was a decision I made at that time. And so these specific verses always mean so much to me. Because it just reminds me of that feeling, wake up. Do you know who you are? Do you know what it means to be a child of God? And the fact that God is telling us, get up out of the dirt. I want to exalt you. And even this sense of putting on the beautiful garments that he gives us clothing in the temple that specifically we're told is the garb of the angels. And this is him trying to show us what we're meant to be, to get up and to be exalted, and to be worthy of sitting on a throne beside him. And I think that a lot of times when we end up in a dark place, it's because we have forgotten these important truths of who we are, and that we have been bought with a price, with the price of the most precious blood of Jesus Christ. But this was not, again, it wasn't a surprise. It was planned from the very beginning. It was the Father's plan of salvation for us to be able to have this opportunity to become his sons and daughters and kings and queens and priests and priestesses unto God. So let's go ahead. I'd like to go down to chapter 52 and start with verse seven. And what I want to do here is maybe set the scene a little bit that we might not only be thinking about Isaiah and the people of his time and who he's prophesying to, but I'd also like us to think for a few minutes about Abinadi in the court of Noah and his priests, because Abinadi is going to use these verses to do some very important teaching. 
And what happened is that when Abinadi went into Noah's court, he told the people there that they needed to repent. And they were pretty offended by that. And so in trying to trick Abinadi, they quote Isaiah to him. And they say, what does this mean? What does this verse mean? In chapter 52, verse 7, how beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him that bringeth good tidings, that publisheth peace, that bringeth good tidings of good, that publisheth salvation, that saith unto Zion, thy God reigneth. In other words, <laughs> they're saying, we're not going to believe that you are a prophet set from God because we're going to take this one verse from Isaiah, and we're going to say that a prophet of God, it brings us beautiful tidings. And the tidings are God lives and God is reigning. And they want to twist that with Abinadi because they're saying, you're saying, you're telling us bad news. So Abinadi says to them, basically, how well do you know the law of Moses? And because they feel like they're experts and they're quoting scripture at him to entrap him. And then he quotes the 10 commandments to them and tells them they're not keeping the Ten Commandments. But in an extremely powerful move, very powerful in my mind, and I always, I'm always i always in awe of Abinadi, <clears throat> that after his sermon, he tells them what really would bring that great tidings, that God lives. And then he quotes Isaiah 53, which is the suffering servant psalm, so to speak. Isaiah's prophecy of the Messiah who would give his life and pour his life out unto death. And in fact, so would you like to go ahead? <clears throat> I'm almost envious, but would you like to go ahead and start reading that uh, Isaiah 53? Tom? Absolutely. And don't say, I don't love you because. I can't. <laughs> yes, take the best. <clears throat> Absolutely. How many verses would you like me to read? I would just love it. Just go ahead and read as you feel and to stop and comment as you feel to do. Okay. So verse one, who hath believed our report and to whom is the arm of the Lord revealed? For he shall grow up before him as a tender plant and as a root out of dry ground. He hath no form nor comeliness. And when we shall see him, there is no beauty that we should desire him. I'm struck by the fact that Isaiah asked that question, who hath believed our report? And there's a news message here. People talk about good news and bad news, but this is the greatest news, that Christ himself would come as the offspring of the Father. The literal king would come to earth to save us from sin and death. Who believes that? Well, I believe it. And I think we're all being tested to see if we really believe that Christ is the son of the highest. And not just in a metaphorical way, but he has literally had power that no other man had. And this, in verse 2, it sounds to me like he's saying he's not a very likely candidate. Obviously, Christ grows up in circumstances that aren't, it's not rich. It's not, he's not well known. He grows up in a difficult situation. And by looking at him, you might not be able to tell, oh yeah, this is the Messiah. He's the son of a carpenter, but there's something more. There's something inside Christ. There's a beauty there. There's a knowledge. There's a power. If we have the spiritual power to see it, if we're not just looking at fame and fortune or military might, or academic credentials, all fine in their own time and season. But if we have the capacity to see him 
him for who he is. And then verse three, he is despised and rejected of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And we hid, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised and we esteemed him not. And for me, that's such powerful language. The idea that Christ wasn't always popular and he wasn't always loved. And in fact, he was hated. And there's a real sense as we read the scriptures, as we read the gospels, and as we start to get a spirit of that, of the truth, is that Christ knows grief in a way that we can scarcely comprehend. We can't fully comprehend. We can glimpse it. But he knows sorrow. And he knows pain in a way that we haven't fully understood. We don't comprehend his pain. He comprehends our pain, but we don't comprehend our, right. his in fact, um, I, go ahead, sorry. Well, I just always think it's such an ironic um, twist that specifically the priests of Noah and Noah have prized possessions and clothing and gold and stature as what they consider to be the measure of an important man. And that then Abinadi quotes Isaiah 53 and is in essence saying, here's what a true man is. Here is the true man. And it's entirely different than what they have painted in their minds. And as you say, this is a news report that is the news report of all news reports. And the reason why one would say, how beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of them that bring this report, that tell this report, that our God lives and reigns, but he is entirely different in his first coming and in his ministry than what we would picture and what so many look for in what is the second coming of the Savior. And it's important that we have to embrace all of these aspects of Christ's character. We can't just look to the conqueror. And we can't just look also to the one who is just the lamb who doesn't speak. But we have to embrace and look to all of these characteristics of his nature. Because it's all of this characteristic that saves us. Yeah, absolutely. We totally agree. I think the mistake that the Jews made was they confused, like you said, the first coming with the second coming. They were expecting the military might of a King David in his glory, but he came as the suffering servant. And of course, we know at the last day when he comes in the second advent, he will be uh, far beyond the mighty King David. He will be a great warrior. He comes in red. Well, if that's not an image that's going to shock people, I don't know what is. And so I totally agree. And also, this idea of Abinadi. Abinadi really was a messenger of mercy. If only the priests of King Noah had realized what he was, the opportunity he was giving them was actually a chance to repent. That's the message you want when you're stranded. Maybe not the message you want, but it's the message you need when you need to be rescued. If only they had listened to that beautiful message. And of course, Abinadi said that God himself would come down among the children of men to save them. And that's a message that's hard for people to hear sometimes. Uh, Greek philosophy, which was based on a philosophical speculation, the idea of God himself coming down to have a tabernacle of clay wasn't very popular. Yeah, but for us, we know this great power and that Christ literally took upon himself flesh to save us. So I, I totally agree. Verse four is wonderful. Surely he hath borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we did esteem him stricken, smitten of God and afflicted. 
we I am absolutely convinced there were people who thought, oh, look at the Christ now. He's been abandoned by God. He's stricken. He's smitten. He's humiliated. He's obviously been punished for his wrongdoing. It would have been easy to make that mistake, to assume that he was somehow unapproved of by God. And when actually the opposite is the case, he is the perfect soul. He is the only one without guile, the only one with no deceit in his mouth. And he absolutely bore our grief. I've thought about that personally many times when I've had grief. Sometimes we say no one knows, no one understands. And that's probably true of other mortal people. But it's not true to say it about Christ, that he doesn't understand, that he doesn't comprehend it. He has borne our griefs. He knows intimately what it is. I know for myself in the challenges I've had, I know that he knows what they're like concretely and exactly. And that's a real reassurance to me to feel that he knows, he understands, and he will help me. So I love that. And then verse five, but he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him. And with his stripes, we are healed. I've often thought as a child, I didn't really want to face the accountability for my own wrongdoing. Sometimes I tried to blame other people and say, oh, they did it when I did it. And here we have an example, not only of someone who doesn't do that, he actually accepts responsibility, not for his own wrongdoing, but for the wrongdoing of other people. When you think about that, how often in your own life have you accepted the wrongdoing that someone else has done? We often wouldn't do that. We want to clear the air. We want our name to be held in high esteem. We want people to think we did, we made the right choice. But the idea of paying for someone else's mistake, that's incredible to me. I'm always moved by that. As Paul says, he was made sin for us. And in fact, Paul refers to the fact that in Deuteronomy, the law of Moses said, cursed is he that dieth on a tree. In other words, it was believed that if a person died on a tree, that was proof of his culpability and proof of his transgression. And so Paul later says, we teach Christ crucified unto the Jews, a stumbling block and unto the Greeks, a foolishness. Because who could ever believe that a God would allow that to happen to themselves? But as you say, one of the most important things is that we need to understand that in a way that is truly incomprehensible at this point, at least in my mortal uh, brain power, that not only did he sit with each of us individually and experience the suffering and sorrow and torment that we do, whether that is at the hands of someone else or because of our own sin, but he also suffered for the perpetrator. So while we were there, I feel like we were each individually there in the same way that he, when he appears to any group of people, he invites them to come one by one and touch the wounds in his hands. I think it's really important for us to understand that the atonement in some way was a one by one event. I don't think it was a big block of here's everyone who's ever lived, but in a very real and very personal way, Christ sat with us and felt everything and then said, if you will, you don't have to feel the weight of any of it anymore because I have carried it for you. I have carried it for you. And I have had that experience of being relieved of the burden of sorrow and heaviness because of the atonement. 
of allowing that to happen. And it is a relief and a, a sense of peace and joy that is, is beyond description. And it is a gift to each and every one of us. It's about us being willing to accept it. Absolutely. And I really believe that we need to come to that realization ourselves. We need to have a witness by the Holy Ghost that the Savior's atonement is infinite, but also intimate. And so I totally agree. It's the atonement, and he becomes at one with us. He, there's nothing I can teach him about suffering or about fear or depression or loneliness or betrayal. He can teach me, but I can't teach him. So absolutely. And, and then verse six, all we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord hath laid on him the iniquity of us all. And we, I think we can all relate to that. I did it my way, the sort of philosophy of the world, which sounds attractive. It sounds exciting. It sounds good. But sometimes we've done it the wrong way. We've gone our own way. And he's been held accountable for that. Verse seven, he was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. He is brought as a lamb to the slaughter and as a sheep before her shearers is dumb. So he opened not his mouth. And we said that earlier, the idea that the Christ didn't speak up. He didn't shout injustice. He didn't hold up a sign saying this is dead wrong or you're, I'm going to, I'm going to get you back for this, or this is a terrible injustice. He accepted it for what it was to save us. And then verse eight, he was taken from prison and from judgment and who shall declare his generation for he was cut off out of the land of the living. For the transgression of my people was he stricken. This idea of who shall declare his generation. We know that Nephi in the Book of Mormon refers to the lineage of Christ, that his mother was Mary, a chosen vessel. In fact, most exceedingly uh, beautiful and pure beyond all virgins, I think, is how he describes it. Something of that nature It's wonderful language. And also that Christ was the son of the eternal father. And I think, wow, what parents he had. He had these amazing parents, Mary, a mortal woman who was the sublime, the pinnacle of womanhood, really. And of course, the father who's the supreme being. So this idea that Christ had that lineage, he had the heritage, which gave him power over sin and death, which the rest of us just don't have. And we're reliant on him. We need him. He's our elder brother. And I love that imagery. He was cut off out of the land of the living. He died that we might be saved. And verse nine, and he made his grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death. Because he had done no violence, neither was any deceit in his mouth. Yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. He hath put him to grief. When thou shalt make his soul an offering for sin, he shall see his seed. He shall prolong his days and the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. He shall see of the travail of his soul and shall be satisfied. By my knowledge, by his knowledge, shall my righteous servant justify many, for he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore will I divide him a portion with the great. And he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he hath poured out his soul unto death. And he was numbered with the transgressors, and he bare the sin of many, and made intercession 
for the transgressors. I love the idea that Christ, he was treated as the most guilty criminal. And he was the most brutal, awful treatment, really, considering he was the most virtuous, the most good, the most lovely of good report person. But this idea, just this one simple idea that he makes his offering for sin, he offers himself his goodness, his innocence. That's right. And And I think it's so important there in verse 10. It's very important. It says, when thou shalt make his soul an offering for sin. In other words, it's like Doctrine and Covenants 45, where the Savior introduces us to the Father and says, behold thy son in whom there was no sin. Behold the blood of thy son. In other words, we're never going to be at the point where we can say, I deserve to come into the presence of the Lord. I am sinless. I did this and I did this great thing. But the only way is when we make his soul an offering for sin, when we recognize that connection, it's him, it's his offering, it's his atonement that enables us to come into the presence of the father. And I love the fact that this pronoun is not changed when Abinadi is quoting it in the book of Mormon. And so that we have this important emphasis on this fact, we are looking to him. We call upon him and his atonement in order to find any justification before the father. It's powerful. It's very powerful. And sometimes people say, oh, will I get a second chance? And I've often thought about that, that we not, we get more than a second chance every single day. We get a new chance. We get many chances. We get thousands of chances to look to God and repent. And he's eager. He doesn't have contempt for us. He doesn't hate us. He doesn't think, look what I did for you and you're ungrateful. He wants us to be blessed. And I'm so grateful that he did that. And I love the reference to he shall see his seed. And I believe with all my heart that we are the seed of God, the seed of Christ, if we accept him. Uh, unconditionally, without reservation, without resistance, we accept him as the son of God, the Messiah, the savior of the world, just like Abraham did, and like all the prophets. And we can rely on that. We're saved because of his infinite blood, his atonement. And that's a powerful reminder of who's on our side and that we've nothing to fear, that God has conquered every enemy. That's right. So again, if we take these chapters as a block of the way that they start in chapter 49, where Israel is saying, I've wandered, how is it possible that you can remember me? And he says, I've graven thee in the palms of my hands. This work is going to be accomplished. Then in chapter 50, there's no divorce. And then look to your father, Abraham and mother, Sarah, have confidence in the covenant believe in the covenant and do your part as they did as a father and mother of faith to in to embrace those promises as if they've happened already and then this sense awake and shake yourself from the dust you need to remember who you are and i am he who comforteth you i've taken out of your hand the cup of wrath or the cup of just justice so to speak and then it's as if how can this be done how is this even possible Then we have Isaiah 53, where it is. How is it possible? Because of the atonement, only because of the atonement. 
can this redemption be accomplished? And then we go to Isaiah 54, which is just particularly meaningful to me. I will share that I was not able to have children from my own body. I have two wonderful adopted children, and I have eight wonderful grandchildren. And this sense where in Isaiah 54, the Lord refers to Israel as his wife who has been barren, but now because of the atonement that has been just described in Isaiah 53, this wife is going to receive redemption and the Lord is going to bring her children. And those children are going to be the Gentiles who accept and come into the family of covenant Israel through accepting Jesus Christ and baptism in his name. Now, I happen to have written a book specifically about the these chapters. It's called The Redemption of the Bride, God's Redeeming Love for His Covenant People. But listen to the wording here in, in Isaiah 54. Sing, O barren, thou that didst not bear. Break forth into singing. So again, she has been... She has not given fruit of the covenant, and she's been wandering for years in terms of this prophecy and this restoration that would come in the latter days, the time that we live in. And as you brought up earlier, when we're just so overwhelmed with the sense of awe and wonder at what God does, we break forth into singing, and he sings to us. And cry aloud, thou that didst not travail with child. For more are the children of the desolate than the children of the married wife, saith the Lord. Enlarge the place of thy tent and let them stretch forth the curtains of thine habitations. Spare not, lengthen thy cords and strengthen thy stakes. For thou shalt break forth on the right hand and on the left and thy seed shall inherit the Gentiles and make the desolate cities to be inhabited. Fear not, for thou shalt not be ashamed. Neither be thou confounded, for thou shalt not be put to shame, for thou shalt forget the shame of thy youth, and shalt not remember the reproach of thy widowhood any more. For thy maker is thine husband, the Lord of hosts is his name, and thy redeemer, the Holy One of Israel, the God of the whole earth shall he be called. For the Lord hath called thee as a woman forsaken and grieved in spirit, and a wife of youth when thou hast refused, saith thy God. For a small moment have I forsaken thee, but with great mercies will I gather thee. And that's chapter 54, verses 1 through 7. Um, The Savior also, by the way, quotes these verses when he is visiting the Nephites, 3rd Nephi chapter 20, and explains what it means that Israel would inherit the Gentiles and how these two people, the Gentile nations who would accept the gospel of Jesus Christ, and the nation of Israel, which is much more than a land in Palestine, but the covenant family of Israel, how important it would be that they should come together in this wholeness of the covenant family. And again, I just rejoice. I do feel to sing that we live in this day that has been prophesied of, that we as members of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints have a double role as the Gentiles, the nursing fathers and mothers that Isaiah prophesies of in Genesis, or excuse me, in Isaiah 49, the nursing mothers and fathers that would bring the children of Israel back to the Lord and back to the covenant. But then also it's as Nephi points out in second Nephi chapter 29, we have a great awe, reverence and respect for the Jewish people who have retained 
the knowledge and the remembrance of the covenant. And while they have suffered, and as Joseph Smith said in Doctrine and Covenants 109, have been smitten and had a long, lonely period, we now have this great news. Remember the news from Isaiah 51 about how beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of those that bring good tidings. We are now the messengers of that great tiding that God lives, that Jesus Christ is real, that the, his church and his covenant have been restored, and that all of those blessings are available to all people today, and that we bring this beautiful unification together through our message. And so I'm thinking and hoping that we are very much tied to the Isaiah prophecies today as we follow our prophet, President Nelson, in the work that he has given us to do. In Again, in Isaiah 54, the Savior says, in a little wrath, I hid my face from thee for a moment. This is verse eight. But with everlasting kindness, I have mercy on thee, saith the Lord thy Redeemer. For this is as the waters of Noah unto me, For as I have sworn that the waters of Noah should no more go over the earth, so have I sworn that I would not be wroth with thee, nor rebuke thee. For the mountains shall depart and the hills be removed, but my kindness shall not depart from thee. Neither shall the covenant of my peace be removed, saith the Lord that hath mercy on thee. O thou afflicted, tossed with tempest and not comforted. Behold, I will lay thy stones with fair colors and lay thy foundations with sapphires. And I will make thy windows of agates and thy gates of carbuncles and all thy borders of pleasant stones. And all thy children shall be taught of the Lord and great shall be the peace of thy children. In righteousness shalt thou be established. Thou shalt be far from oppression for thou shalt not fear and from terror for it shall not come near thee. Behold, they shall surely gather together, but not by me. Whosoever shall gather together against thee shall fall for thy sake. Behold, I have created the smith that bloweth the coals in the fire and that bringeth forth an instrument for his work. And I have created the waster to destroy. No weapon that is formed against thee shall prosper. And every tongue that shall rise against thee in judgment, thou shalt condemn. This is the heritage of the servants of the Lord and their righteousness is of me, saith the Lord. These are beautifully profound promises to the house of Israel, the covenant house of Israel, which is comprised of both Gentiles and members of the original family of Abraham. Whether or not they have blood DNA does not matter. The promises are the same to all who will come and partake of the waters of life and the bread of life, who is Jesus Christ. Yeah, that's so powerful, isn't it, Linda? that we live in the days of prophecy fulfillment. And this is a manifest destiny. This is a certainty. This is not something that might happen. This is something that is happening. Uh, I'm really touched by the focus on certainty and the triumph that this is the strengthening in the latter days, the gathering, the healing, the barrenness giving way to fruitfulness and, and also the sense of power. I really believe that our covenants give us power to do things that we just couldn't do without them. And we shouldn't trivialize those covenants. We shouldn't think of them as unimportant or irrelevant. They are powerful. And as, a, as an individual and as a body, covenant people are powerful, do great things. Well, and that takes us, and I feel like we should probably end here with Isaiah 56, when you speak of covenants and 
these great promises that are being fulfilled include and are so important. And Isaiah begins, as we know, in in Isaiah chapter two, with the reestablishment of the temple and the blessings and covenant blessings that do come to us through the temple. So Isaiah 56 specifically talks about that great promise. It says, this is starting with verse two through eight. Blessed is the man that doeth this and the son of man that layeth hold on it, meaning the promises that keepeth the Sabbath from polluting it and keepeth his hand from doing any evil. Neither let the son of the stranger that hath joined himself to the Lord speak, saying, the Lord hath utterly separated me from his people. Neither let the eunuch say, behold, I am a dry tree. In other words, those who would feel like they did not have the right to be within the covenant family, whether it is that they have a handicap, uh, such as not being able to have children or whether or not they were born outside of the family of Israel, they are able to receive and claim all of the same covenant blessings. For thus saith the Lord unto the eunuchs that keep my Sabbaths and choose the things that please me and take hold of my covenant. Even unto them will I give in mine house and within my walls a place and a name better than of sons and of daughters. I will give them an everlasting name that shall not be cut off. Also the sons of the stranger that joined themselves to the Lord to serve him and to love the name of the Lord, to be his servants, every one that keepeth the Sabbath from polluting it and taketh hold of my covenant. Even them will I bring to my holy mountain and make them joyful in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices shall be accepted upon mine altar. For mine house shall be called a house of prayer for all people. The Lord God, which gathereth the outcasts of Israel, saith, Yet will I gather others to him besides those that are gathered unto him. And again, this, these are amongst the verses that for me made me go searching for a temple, that made me go searching for a church that believed in the temple blessings and the covenant blessings that were available anciently to Israel. Only now it's better than it ever was then because women could not go into the temple and only one family from one tribe could go within the temple in ancient days. But just as Isaiah prophesied today, all people, none are denied who would partake of that blessing, are invited to come into the temple to receive the everlasting name of Jesus Christ, to come into covenant with him and to be called his people and to be called by the covenant family of Israel. And again, this is that great work of salvation, God's work, which is to bring to pass the immortality and eternal life of man. And that all families can be sealed together, that we are one great family of, as you mentioned earlier, Zion, that you believe that we are and can be a part of Zion now today. And we see that evidence specifically in temple work as we turn our hearts to those who cannot do that work for themselves, but also feel the blessing and comfort of knowing that they are there doing their part and that we can feel their great interest in this work. Absolutely, Linda. I love the fact that our Father in Heaven and His Son are reaching out to us. They're offering this gospel covenant to all the world and on the other side of the veil to those who are departed. And they want to bring us back to them in one, linked and sealed and joined eternally so that we achieve the full measure of our creation 
And yeah, it's such a hopeful message. It is such a message of power, a message of purpose, a message of destiny, a message of promise. I love the idea of the temple being a house of prayer, a house of covenant, a house of rejoicing. I love the temple and the peace that it brings me there. I feel a sense of destiny. I remember the first time I went to receive my endowments and I felt a great spiritual outpouring, a sense of knowing who I was, to locate myself within God's plan. And I love the fact that in the temple, we go there individually to receive our own blessings, our own signs and tokens that are important for us to have. And each individual is precious in the house of the Lord. None are forgotten. Each name is one by one. The work is done. And that is how the work of the Lord is done. And I I really believe that the gospel is to go to all. Our father and his son want all to come and to receive this message. So I'm so grateful for the prophet Isaiah. And what a message, what a messenger. And we need to be members who who match this message, who have risen up, who have awoken, who are aware and are trying to be the best we can be. And I don't think we can ever be too good. I think if we try to be like Christ, he will help us. And so I I believe that with all my soul. I love my Savior, and I'm so grateful to know that he lives, uh, that he is full of love, and he will save us with an everlasting salvation if we will come. Amen to that. And how important it is for us to teach these beautiful truths to our children. If he is calling us his wife or his bride, how are we doing at teaching his children about these precious promises and covenants and the truths of the atonement? I'm so grateful to have spent this time with you today, Tom. Thank you so much. You are in a stake building in Ireland, and I know you went there a few hours early so that we could do this. Thank you for that. Thank you for your beautiful book. And to our listeners, we hope that this has been meaningful to you and that you will take some time to study these beautiful promises of Isaiah. I know that they are true. I know that Jesus Christ lives. I know the plan of salvation is the plan of our Father and that they love us entirely and completely. And I say this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen.